Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome back to SODOC. It's cancer. This is episode eight today in our podcast to understand cancer, how it happens, how it's treated, how we arrive at a diagnosis and at a prognosis. Cancer's impact upon a person's quality of life and how to move forward in life after a cancer diagnosis. The show airs monthly and we welcome your engagement and feedback. Today, we are super excited and proud to present as our special guest, Keith Bowersox. And we have our ordinaries, Paul Roach, Peter Schlegel, and Michael Reardon. Welcome Hello, to everyone. the show, guys. Thanks, Paul. How you been? How you been? It's been a little more than a month this time. We all got busy. All good. All right. Well, let's introduce Keith today. Keith, if you would, first of all, hello, and thanks for being on the show. And how did you end up getting this idea of going into medicine? Wow. Uh, you know, I think uh, I just enjoyed a combination of science and helping people. And there's really not many ways that you can keep it current. And medicine is a good way to do it. Awesome. And then you got a PhD as well. I do. And uh, I mean, first of all, isn't that a little excessive? Just an MD. <laughs> Does that make PhD? you doctor, doctor? <laughs> yeah. uh, sadly, yes. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I, uh, I enjoyed chemistry quite a bit. And I had, I think the biggest decision was not whether I wanted to be a doctor, but whether I wanted to be a surgeon or, uh, you know, some, some something else. So the, I really enjoyed chemistry uh, when, I, when I was going through it. My uh, program director said, do you want to keep doing this while you go to medical school or, you know, should we let your program, your, your research sort of fizzle? And I kept with it. So plus I got paid. So you can't beat that. Oh, not bad. Not bad at all. And then how did you pick thoracic surgery, CT surgery? Well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to uh, dump on you, Paul, but you know, it's, it's clean. It's, you know, it's beautiful. It's elegant and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's got a lot of mystery. So I just love the heart and love the lungs and it's good. Paul, yeah, you no. said CT. What's the C? I got thoracic on the T. Cardiothoracic. There we go. All right. All right. So today's topic is going to be lung cancer. It's a big subject, more than we can cover in 45 minutes or an hour, but uh, we'll, maybe we'll hit the high points or the low points or whatever points we need to hit. So Keith, what do you think in terms of lung cancer overview and its impact across the world? So, so we'll talk about some generalities, but I think the biggest thing to say is that lung cancer is bad right? But 2023 is probably the best time in history to have it. And I think Peter can talk about it. And you, you know, other people can talk about it there. You know, I think lung cancer has lagged a little bit behind breast cancer, but it's, it's sort of in parallel, but a little behind. They're just doing so much amazing things as far as screening genetic markers, you know, manipulation of things, advanced stage treatments. So yeah, it's a bad diagnosis, but today's one of the best types in history to have it. All right, Peter, what do you think? Yeah, lung cancer is, is, a, is a heavy diagnosis. It is bad. It results in considerable amount of, of, of illness and, and death. It is one of the most preventable types of cancer simply by not smoking. 
but there are different environmental uh, risk factors and there's just bad luck. Uh, the, the stage of, of diagnosis makes the biggest difference so that if you wind up with an early detection of your lung cancer and see a surgeon, your outcomes are much, much better than letting it fester and spread and metastasize and then try to deal with it. Having said that, that, that we have good options along the way, but the earlier, the better. Some statistics, you know, 238,000 people every year get in the United States gets di- get diagnosed with lung cancer. That's one person every 2.2 minutes. So, and the kind of the bad thing is that 80% of those are, are diagnosed in an advanced stage, you know, sta- you know, where it's already gone to the lymph nodes or even further. And that's because it's such a painless process. Um, I think that with, uh, with the current push towards lung cancer screening. Uh, We're trying to change that so that, as Peter mentioned, that we can get more people into the surgical arm because the statistics of, for example, regular lung cancer, I guess, or non-small cell lung cancer for for medical type people, um, is much higher survival if you get a diagnosis while it's still in the early stages. Michael, what was your question? Uh, of that large statistic, what's the, to me, and I think to a lot of people, this is a, this is a smoker's disease, which is probably not true, but what's the percentage of, I think you said 238,000? Um, what's the percentage that it's due to smoking? Well, 60, 65% of cancers are diagnosed in non-smokers. That doesn't mean they never smoked. So hmm. people who smoke college, whatever, and then stopped. Uh, but 12%, 12 to 20, depending on your, on your study, were diagnosed with never smokers. You know, Asian women have adenos, things like that. So it's, it's, it's not uncommon for people who don't have cancer or no smoking to, to have it. But as Peter said, the best thing you can do for risk prevention is not to smoke. Well, you said like, like Asian women, is that is it a high prevalence among Asian women? It's not really a high prevalence, but that's just kind of the one where you you think about it. Okay, because you know I lived in Japan for a little while, and I know well that's twenty five years ago now, thirty years ago now. But uh, at that time, it was a pretty heavy smoking country. So uh, even if you didn't smoke, I would think that you, your exposure to it. I guess that, that's where I'm going. How much of it, even of the people who didn't smoke? is secondhand, you know, if you had a spouse that smoked or is that also factored into that? Or you just say, I never smoked. So I think, I think that secondhand smoking would enter into it. And uh, perhaps Peter can talk about the statistic. It's probably, I'll just thumbnail it 20% versus a regular smoker. And we could talk about some lung cancer screening rules for all those people out there who may have had a little bit of a history of smoking. We could talk about what the government's currently allowing and providing for. What is the the screening push that you're talking about? I haven't heard anything about that. I'd be happy to address that. The U.S. Preventive Task Force basically is trying to follow suit with the breast cancer and mammography, cervical cancer, and pap smear to promote early detection and and more successful treatment when it can be detected early, successfully cut out without having to worry about death and uh, advanced disease. So the U.S. Preventive 
uh, task force suggests that people who've had greater than 20 pack year history, that means that they've smoked one pack per day for 20 years, or they've smoked two packs per day for 10 years. In any case, the, the term that doctors use is pack year smoking history. The, the more smoking exposure one has, the higher the risk for having lung cancer. You had spoken about uh, secondary uh, exposure to smoke when they worked in a tavern and didn't smoke or they were married to a spouse who smoked. There's still some increased incidence compared to the general population that has never smoked, but there's usually there's a pretty clear relationship between the amount of smoking that one has had and the chance of having uh, lung cancer. The, the U.S. Preventive Task Force suggests that people from the age of 50 to 80, uh, some of the other groups are a little bit more inclusive and don't and exclude some of the older patients are <coughs> eligible for this screening. And if they haven't quit within 15 years, i.e. they're still smoking, they quit five years ago, 10 years ago. Uh, but after about 10 years of quitting smoking, then their risk of, of lung cancer pretty much comes back to what the baseline risk in this country is, which is fairly low and not worthwhile to go through all the pain and suffering of getting a yearly CT of the chest and everything secondary to that. What is the early detection test? The early detection test is a CT scan. Pretty simple. Oh. I think pe people go into a CT scanner, takes less than two minutes, and they get a pretty good picture of what's going on in the lung. There's no contrast, nothing really fancy. Really, the key is that you have trained radiologists that are monitoring. They're monitoring for any sort of changes that may have existed from year to year. Uh, the it's big sort of a low dose CAT scan, low dose radiation. It's it's pretty good. One of the disadvantages the, for every one lung cancer that we detect, we may detect as many as eight or nine, what we call false positives where we see a ditzel and that takes us into the pattern where we're saying, hmm, this could be lung cancer, but ultimately just turns out to be a scar or a benign tumor or something that's not important. Yet, we don't know that when we have the CT scan. So you're, you're saying that smoking is, is by and large, the, the biggest reason. What are some other reasons that might lead someone to uh, be diagnosed with lung cancer? Yeah. Hey, like what other environmental factors can contribute to lung cancer. The number one that I am aware of is radon. And it's sort of an untalked about thing. And, you know, where people who have like a basement apartment or in some parts of the country, that's a fairly significant risk factor. Uh, oh, wow. It's important to remember radon. As far as the, just to talk about screening, the couple of caveats that you got to remember are, it's not a get out of jail free card. And part of the program, because we follow so many of these, as uh, Peter mentioned, is that we have to have smoking cessation protocols in place. So that means people that come in and are smokers, we got to try and stop them because the, the survival benefit is only if you kind of stop smoking and try and change your ways. If you keep smoking, then all you're doing is, is getting, you know, finding, finding the problem after it started. What was else I was going to say about screening? It, it sounds like I, my doctor isn't going to bring it up to me because I'm not a smoker, so I, I'm at less of a risk. So is this something when I go to see my GP, they're just basically, if you have a history of smoking, they might you know, say, hey, we need to screen you. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. it's the job you of know, the I mean, primary care doctor to go through your history and say, hmm, you're a smoker. And if you're honest with them, that they'll be able to give you accurate information and say, gee, if you're smoking, maybe we should think about quitting and you're maybe at higher risk for lung cancer. So let's do this CT screening program with a yearly uh, CT scan, et cetera. One thing I just wanted to <laughs> add uh, regarding risk factors, we talked about radon, Agent Orange, some of our Vietnam Veterans do have a higher risk of, of lung cancer. Oh, that's a good Some point. things that are just very unclear is the vaping and whether you're vaping uh, nicotine or THC. I don't think we've seen quite as much uh, risk of, of, of lung cancer with the typical uh, marijuana smoker. There is some in increase, but it's not nearly as, as high or as risky as uh, lung cancer, uh, or excuse me, as tobacco smoking is for lung cancer. So you were asking about I kind of answered the, the radon and smoking, but if you, the scariest thing is the guy walking down the street, how do you know if you might be at risk for a lung cancer, particularly if you smoked or didn't smoke? Cough, an unexplained cough that you're, you know, that's a change in your normal behavior, uh, you know, unexplained weight loss, those sorts of things would, you know, you should, you know, bring it up with your doctor and, they would then get a chest X-ray or whatever set okay. is appropriate without a screening um, reason. <laughs> Peter, you said something that, that, that sort of amused me, which is uh, if you're honest with your doctor. Can, so you guys are yeah. <laughs> you guys are doctors, and I, I just find it. I mean, I can tell when someone's a smoker. Do, do people really lie to you? And you must oh, know. Oh, absolutely. Like, absolutely. It's, they they don't want to hear the lecture for the 80th time about their smoking. They're just like, come on, doc. I love smoking. And those are actually the hardest people to have quit. But uh, it is just, yeah, there's, there's a lot of misinformation in communication with patients. I mean, it's really critical that, that our audience is, is truthful with their primary care. It, it makes your care so much better than if you're hiding some little details about what some of your personal habits are, albeit suboptimal. I was yeah. talking with my med students about that exact point today because uh, one of my patients this week uh, was saying he smokes three to four cigarettes a week and we walk into the room and he's puffing out vaping. So it wasn't cigarettes, but, and I, and I was like telling the students, don't believe that for a second. He, you know, he, he smokes three to four packs a week, not cigarettes. You could tell. Um, yeah, that, that, that's come up a couple of times where um, either through embarrassment or, you know, they, they just don't want to hear from you guys, uh, like what good health is. Um, but yeah, it's come back time and time again, or, or, or their wife is in the room, but you really have to be honest, right? Because if, if, if you hold anything back that potentially, like that's that first line of defense when you go see your primary care physician. And if you're not being honest with them, even about stuff that might be potentially embarrassing or, or get you in trouble with the missus, uh, the, you're really setting yourself really far back. Like, totally. It, okay. The, the system relies on that. That's like the entry point into the system. My, okay. my grandmother who was born in 1900, God rest her soul. She, we brought her to the doctor when she was around 90 and she didn't say a single thing to him. And my mom was saying to grandma, mom, why didn't you tell him anything? 
And she looked at her and she said, honey, he's the doctor. Like he's supposed <laughs> to somehow know, you know? <laughs> no, <laughs> That's fantastic. I like that story, Paul. Well, anyway, all right. So let's say a person has cancer. You know, they're, they're in your office, either uh, Peter or Keith's office. And, you know, there's a spot that's been seen on it. Let's say they developed a new cough or shortness of breath. And then someone got an x-ray and the x-ray shows a spot. So it's really hard to, to know exactly what it is. What do you tell your patients at that point in terms of, all right, this is what we've got to do to work up this, this spot on your x-ray. And, and these are the potential things it could be. Well, I think the most important thing is we're becoming more data driven and it's all about stage. And as, as Peter mentioned before, we're getting a lot of nodules now that are diagnosed incidentally is the big word, which means you just find them. You know, if you live in like the South, like Southern Arizona, California, you know, the kind of the cryptococcus histoplasmosis belt, these are all right, I got to stop you right there. <laughs> That's Crypt, all right. Crypt what now? <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it's a clean it, it, it's show. A, it's, it's a clean a show. It's a fancy word for oh, fungus. Okay. <laughs> but also, Keith, yeah. so we you, have a you, lot of listeners from around the world, it turns out, uh, when I analyze who's listening. And so it's not just the USA. We've got people in Africa and in Southeast Asia and in Western and Eastern Europe. I don't Europe. know whether Ebola could cause it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, Mike, you was talking about different fungi, fungi that can, you know, you inhale and mm -hmm. they cause spots in your lung that, that maybe don't even bother you. But when you, someone shoots an x-ray, they can see something and they're like, hey. And it looks like uh, cancer? Can it, it become can cancer? Like, it cannot. Yeah. It looks like cancer, but does it actually ever become cancer? I don't think so. Well, there's things called scar cancers, but the, bi the bigger picture is that you can, for every person that gets a nodule, they should not immediately go to the worst case scenario. They should just, you know, let their doctor give them their recommendations and advice. And there's a lot of ways to look. Ironically, in my work, maybe not so much in Peter's work, but a solitary pulmonary nodule is a much bigger deal than if you have five nodules, because most people don't get five cancers. They get one, it, and it, for us, we, if we want to find that guy who's got the one nodule that we can take care of and, and cure the problem. So one pulmonary nodule is more of a workup. And then they have size criteria under three-eighths of an inch is usually not anything to worry about. Anything over a half an inch, we start to worry about. Uh, and then we can do follow-ups that's the annoying part to a lot of people you can get cat scans three six months yearly to make sure that it's stable there are other tests that can be done which i don't know whether you want me to go into the weeds why is cancer bad cancer is bad because it grows faster than the rest of your body we use that against it by taking sugar which is what the body uses to grow and putting radiation on it so if you if you put the radiation in and then all of a sudden this nodule glows, we get the idea that it's growing. And then that raises the risk factor. And then we would want to figure out what it is a little more strongly. So you actually, you're, you're feeding sugar to cancer to see at the rate at which it consumes it. Interesting. Yep. 
That's called a PET scan. Oh, I've heard of those, but I didn't understand how it works. I should have gone to medical school. <laughs> You'd have been a star, Mike. Yeah. yeah. Way to go, Michael. So I should have gone to grad to, to graphic <laughs> yeah. school. Yeah, that would be so. So you work up this uh, this this spot, and you do a biopsy, and it's going to come back because it's a cancer podcast. This spot comes back as a cancer. Then the first thing is you have to tell the patient basically what kind of type of cancer it is. It's either going to be a small cell lung cancer, which is about 15 out of a hundred, or it's going to be other than that, a non-small cell, which is like 85 out of a hundred. Wouldn't that just be large cell? Is this something ah, else? very good question. <laughs> very good question. There is one called yeah, large but then cell. people could easily take our jobs if we made it that. <laughs> yeah, you know. So no, small cell is a specific type, and it's a different kind of creature than the others. Uh, if I've got this correctly, guys. And small cell, in fact, is what my father had small cell back in in 1985. Mm. Um, and it's a it's its own type, and it 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 comes about uh, also through smoking, but through a different pathway, and then it's treated kind of differently, mostly with chemotherapy. Is that right, Peter? Correct. Uh, radiation and chemotherapy. Surgeons are becoming more and more involved with any uh, early stage of lung cancer, but for the most part, the small cell tends to have a a really bad behavior and spread pretty quickly such that it's rarely found in an early stage of small disease that can be simply cut out. And it tends to start really centrally too in your chest, I think, Often which makes it, it harsh. Okay. And then, so we'll concentrate on the non-small cell of which the two major players, as in for most cancers, is either squamous or adeno. So Michael, you don't need to remember, there's no quiz at the end of this. I've been, I've been writing it's notes. sort of, Okay, good. But it's sort of like squamous cells are- Skin and gland. Yeah, yeah, skin and gland. So your skin cells are squamous and your the gland cells in your body are adeno. So the, the inner lining of your windpipe is a skin, right? It, you know, it's kind of exposed to the air. So that's the squamous type cells, the skin type cells. And then in between those, there are gland type cells. So- Every now and then one of those goes haywire. And then when they do, they, they make the tumor. Well, what about the lungs themselves with all the, if I'm remembering my biology correctly, the alveoli, they're just little, little air sacs and stuff. Is that, that doesn't sound like either skin or um, gland. What is that? Again, if you go out far enough, there's going to be a little bit of an airway and they're all sort of intermixed. But yeah, there is. I don't know where we would call bronchoalveolar, which is a big word for um, kind of a diffuse sort of spongy tumor. That might be more of an alveolar type spread, but it doesn't really matter. It matters more for Peter when you get to chemotherapy. For me, I'm just a hands guy. I, if it's bad, it comes out no matter what, what, what's the diagnosis. The big issue for us, uh, sadly, as we mentioned, is you know, if cancer's a weed, has it gone to seed yet? And if it's gone to seed in the liver, well, 
we aren't going to be able to necessarily pluck that weed. Although today in, in 2023, we are being more aggressive with uh, solitary weeds that have sprouted elsewhere, but those are different therapies. So if you, but if you have a weed, the, if you have a nodule in your lung, the most common site for it to hop to is the lymph nodes. So we find that out by that sugar test, the PET, and then we can now sample those very easily with pretty painless tests called, they use a, a, a bronchoscopic examination where they stick a little tube down your throat and, and they take samples that way. If they show that the weed is jumped, then we go into a different category of therapies. And when we talk about cancer, we think there's three ways to talk about it. One is local, regional, and distant spread or stages, eight, one, two, three, and four uh, is the more medical way of thinking about it. So stage one and two, most people are going to get surgery. Uh, we're actually, there's some new studies that are showing that if you're in stage two, you may be better off with this fancy new stuff called immunotherapy before surgery. Uh, and if you're stage three, you know, most people would either do all chemo radiation, stage three or four, or you would do chemo radiation, chemo plus or minus radiation and then surgery. Yeah. From the patient point of view, that, that's probably the most nerve wracking part is the staging and to determine how far advanced the cancer is and therefore what your prognosis is and, and what sort of treatment that you get. As was just discussed at the early stage, if it's small, the surgeon can take care of it. If it's regional, it's spread to lymph nodes, then it's kind of well. Sometimes things turn out well, sometimes they don't. And we're going to bring in everybody we can to see if we can salvage the situation and actually cure the patient. And at that this point, 2023, we count on radiation, not only to radiate where it started from, but some of the lymph nodes in that area. And that promotes having a big field of radiation through your chest, but yet it can encompass all of the, the lung cancer. To oversimplify uh, radiation, it's like taking a magnifying glass on a summer day where you can focus all the sun's beams into a very hot spot. So the radiation oncologist is very adept at focusing those x-ray beams at the critical uh, cancer sites, the lymph nodes where it started from, but avoiding the, the spinal cord, the heart, some structures at the lungs, blood vessels, and so forth. Um, and that actually can be very complicated, very technology heavy, but it works out very well for a lot of patients. Uh, we sometimes mix it with systemic therapies, whole body uh, drugs, chemotherapy, and or immunotherapy, which I could spend a lot of time talking about. Then if it, the cancers move beyond the, the lymph nodes, then we call it stage four. If it's in the bones, it's in the internal organs, even if it's in the brain, that, that basically we've said, gee, the cat's out of the bag, and the best we can do is slow it down. Now, there are exceptions to all those rules that occasionally people who have one or two spots that have spread out, even though they're metastatic, are cured. And I have at least half a dozen people that have, have been diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer and have survived. Um, and it's not a miracle, but it just, it's statistically the, unlikely. The data, if you have a single brain metastatic, brain weed uh, from a lung cancer, 
is you can almost have a 25% chance for five-year survival by getting treated. And the treatments today are, he mentioned radiation. It's important to talk about, you know, radiation has changed dramatically from what it was 30 years ago, uh, in, or even 10 years ago, 15 years ago. They used to be three x-ray or flashlights because that's all they could get. And they would do three beams and then they would, you know, focus those all in the same location. So the toxicity between the skin and your tumor had to be very, it was very close to each other. Nowadays, they have 1,400 flashlights. So instead of getting 30 days of treatment, you can get three to five days of treatment. And that is about 85% as good as surgery for local control. That, so those are stereotactic radiation has been a game changer for people. So if your doctor told you, you know, hey, you, you really don't need any of these tests because your lungs are so bad. Well, that's not, I wouldn't agree with that. So even, even if you're at, in a late stage, you're saying that the, the state of radiation therapy now with its, that's an amazing statistic. 100%. Like, let's say you're scared of surgery. I have people that, that, that don't want x-rays, don't want screenings because they're afraid of surgery. And they say, I don't even want to know because I'm never going to let you cut on me anyway. Well, that patient could still get 85% with no surgery, no, you know, just local control. I don't advocate that uh, personally because I think that 15% is, you know, 15 people. Uh, over five years, but I think that's it's still better than the alternative, which is eighty nine people if they don't get therapy. And, and to back up just a sec on how radiation therapy does its, you know, does its work. So imagine you've got an ultra powerful flashlight, and you're just you've got one sensor, and you're going to send all the radiation out through that sensor and it's like a flashlight. Well, that's kind of like a lightsaber going straight through from front to back, whatever you aim it at. So that's too much. The treatment is gonna, is, is gonna be worse than the disease. But by breaking it up into three separate ones, which is what they used to do, and they're all coming at different angles, only in that one spot where all three beams converge, does the tissue get the full dose of those photons or the x-rays? And now what Keith, you know, Keith is talking about is they can do it from how many different sources? I think it's 1,440. Holy yeah, I mean, no cow. More. 1,440 different sources. So, so each you know brain cell, let's say it's a lesion in your brain, is only getting a one fourteen hundredth of what it would have if it was a single beam because it's all coming from different angles. And again, only in the spots where it wants to converge does it get the full dose. So, so it, that's how they're able to do, do this. Ten millimeters. Is this delivered in like a you know like one of those big MRI machines or something where it's all around your body and it's it's focusing beams from every angle, like back, front, side, all over. So the kind of the cool. The cool thing about this is the story about how it evolved, which I, again, I'm a surgeon, so I like surgery, but uh, this, th this neurosurgeon was driving into 
San Francisco after one of the big quakes, and he saw these uh, civil engineers with x-ray machines on their shoulders, and they were checking the uh, bridge abutments for you know, subclinical fractures. And he said, oh, huh. So then they literally took that and they put it on a, one of the car uh, you know, manufacturing robots so it could move around and you know, focus it all on the middle. And it's just fascinating technology. The term that I've heard thrown around is linear accelerator. That's the big machine. You have to go to a radiation center. The specialist that delivers the radiation is kind of the radiation oncologist. There's a whole profession uh, of, of, of people who work there with dosimetrists and therapists. Uh, there's just a, the, the amount of technology and computer uh, uh, power is, is amazing at those radiation centers. Well, let me ask then. When I was a kid, uh, a couple of my aunts had cancer, and they were wiped out. I mean, they, the cure was as bad as the disease in a lot of ways. And, you know, their, their hair fell out, and I think that still happens. But now I see, you know, there's a, there's a senator on the floor right now who's undergoing cancer treatment, and his hair is gone, but he's still very active in his job, and he's on the floor, and he's debating. My aunts never could have done that 40 years ago. Is the, and I'm asking this as I think there is a lot of fear, you know, I'm old enough that it's like, oh my God, I have, to, I have cancer. Are you right? I hear that from you guys. And then I'm like, oh my God. And, that, I, and radiation, I remember, I remember radiation for my relatives and it's horrible. And, and they're, they're basically laying in an almost vegetative state most of the day because they're recovering from it. It sounds like that might not be the case anymore. And I don't need to be as afraid of radiation therapy as I remember seeing it. Is that true? Yeah. I, I think the side effects for most of these treatments are less, although they still can be severe and they can be life-threatening. Patient selection is very important that we want to have people that are healthy and not consumed by their cancer by the time they start treatment. We actually have a very strict objective criteria about who is who can tolerate chemotherapy, who can tolerate immune therapy, who can tolerate radiation and so forth. And having said that, we, we do a good job of making sure that the treatment is suitable for the illness. And one of the points that I will make as a medical oncologist is that it is very important from the get-go uh, or early in, in your journey with lung cancer whether you know that the goal is to cure you of the cancer, whether that's realistic and possible in 2023, or whether the best we can do is slow it down and give you a good quality of life. And from that division point, that can really drive how aggressive or not aggressive we're going to be. If we're in a case where the cancer is all over the body, the best we can do is slow it down. Well, we have to accept that reality, and we don't want to cause more harm than good. On the other hand, if we say, you know, by going through this treatment, we could remove this from your body. You'll never have to suffer from end-stage cancer. If this is successful, we're going to go down that route. So I, it's really important, again, that we know what the stage is, that the patient is realistic about what expectations, and we go down the correct path. I think what he, the, big, the big words are curative versus palliative. And, you know, if you're if you're going for cure, you may be willing to put up with some more upfront pain than if you, you know, really don't feel bad and we're just trying to make it so your life is 
is better longer. So let's just say we're going to go for cure. Let's say it's a stage one or stage two. And again, that means stage one, it's, it's just that spot, that cancer, and it's local. And stage two, it's, it's moved a little bit into the lymph nodes right next to it, correct? Or it's a little bigger spot, but it hasn't moved centrally. Like I said, I thought the, the cancer uh, society, local, regional, and distant. Okay, and great. So if you're so local, say- then that's therapy. Now, it, 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 there's some very good studies that are being done with, um, again, it's very important to find out how, where your stage is or what's going on before you jump into to surgery or radiation or chemo. And I think that though we're getting very good at doing that without a lot of discomfort. One thing that we should talk about, one of the reasons why there's a difference between that radiation we were talking about and a surgical approach uh, or medical therapy is because when we do surgery, we sample those lymph nodes. And about 15% of the time, we find that the, even though we didn't see that the, the weed has spread, we actually find it on those diagnoses. So then those people were actually being more aggressive today in sending them for uh, uh, additional therapies. The other thing is to talk about immunotherapy, adding immunotherapy to some of the people before surgery, if they have that local or uh, regional, like if it's gone from the lung to the lymph nodes, they're finding that that seems to have a fairly significant improvement. And I think we'll do a whole episode next month on the difference between chemotherapy and, and biological therapy and small molecule and immunotherapy. So we don't have to get too into the weeds on exactly what that is right now. I'll just tell everyone to tune in next month. But when it comes down to doing surgery, let's say you're going to operate, you propose to a patient, you know, I think we can remove this. This is local through surgery. What actually do you do? You know, what can they expect is your, your method for how you're going to take out some of their lung and you know what kind of decisions do you have in that process? Basically, the lung is like a, a cluster of grapes. So you have a stalk, and it goes down and it spreads into you know other substocks. And one of again, when we talk about the difference between that radiation and surgery, is if you have enough lung function, and we can talk about that in a second. If you have enough lung function. You don't just pluck the bad grape. I say, you know, lung cancer is a bad grape. You don't just pluck the bad grape. You take it down at the stalk so that you get any of the other grapes that it could have touched. Radiation pretty much just kills the bad grape. Whereas if there's any things that slip through the, the fancy word is lymphatics, if it's gone through that lobe, we, we take, so we take the whole cluster of grapes and those are usually uh, divided, the lung is divided into lobes. Data is pushing us to taking less, which are called segments. Uh, and those are people, in my opinion, that are, have marginal lung function. Normal person breathes out about three or four liter Pepsi bottles for every breath. 
we want you to breathe at least 0.8 or one Pepsi bottle after you're done. Uh, there, there are two ways to do the surgery. One is the old fashioned way where we spread the ribs. Everybody has to be ready for that. But statistically nowadays, 95 times out of 100, surgeries are done minimally invasive in my hands. And I think uh, many people's hands, statistically, it's going up through the roof. And that's either with a scope, video assisted approach, like the old lap gallbladders, um, or robotic. Yeah. And, and to back up a few minutes regarding another issue Michael was bringing up, which is the subject of foregoing surgery and going straight to radiation. It strikes me that most of the cancers that we've been discussing have not been in what you'd call vital organs, whether it's bladder cancer or skin cancer or even esophageal cancer. But when you're talking lung cancer, you need those lungs every minute of every day, and you can only remove so much of them before you, you know, uh, you've taken too much. So like for a skin cancer, you can remove that skin and, and then you can just patch it or you can skin graft it or whatever. The bladder, you remove the bladder and you figure out ways to deal with life without a bladder or without esophagus. But your lungs, nope. That's a, that's a very fixed amount of, you need a certain amount of lung function in order to get through. So that's where that distinction comes in. All right. So in terms of, uh, let's say you've, you've, you've operated and then he goes over to Peter, uh, or she goes over to Peter for the medical oncology aspect. Peter, what are some of the key issues that you would bring up uh, at that visit? Yeah, assuming that they're a localized stage and that it's been removed and I have a copy of the pathology, first of all, what type of lung cancer it is in terms of non-small cell, small cell, whatever, how large it is. And probably the single most important factor that you're looking at then is their involvement of lymph nodes. If the cancer is spread to the lymph nodes, we know that there's at least a 50% chance that there's some microscopic seeds elsewhere in the body, that the cancer has went from the lung to the lymph node elsewhere. And at that point, we would say, hmm, there may be some hidden cancer somewhere else in your body. Maybe we should think about doing additional therapy. Chemotherapy has been proven to be very helpful for reducing the risk, uh, and, and as studies are proliferating, we're finding the immunotherapy may be additive as well, depending upon what the, the cancer looks like under a microscope. But the first question is, would the patient benefit from additional systemic or whole body therapy? Uh, and sometimes we can, based on the tumor marker, we would do that preemptive. We would do the first treatment with the, uh, the, the immune therapy first and then go to surgery. That's a little more complicated, but assuming you've had the surgery, then the medical oncologist can kind of come up with a, a plan in terms of, is there additional treatments we need now to treat any kind of potential microscopic seeds? We call that adjuvant or preventative therapy. And the second is a survivorship program where people are being monitor, we call it surveillance, where we're getting scans maybe twice a year. We're monitoring them for headaches because occasionally one of these microscopic seeds can wind up in the brain and cause headaches, seizures, things like that. We have to be on top of that. Uh, but the very the, the fact is, is that 
during the medical oncology evaluation, we really want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to increase the risk, uh, increase the chance of being a long-term cure. And then secondly, what kind of follow-up does the person need? All right. All right. Well, and we will, we will get into the differences between chemo and, and biologic and immunotherapy uh, next month, I believe. And uh, are there any other saved rounds regarding lung cancer and treatment uh, before we head out? I'm just going to say it again, man. The, it, everything that I've learned over the last couple of episodes is you want it to be caught early. And the best way to have it caught early is to make sure that you're having your annual checkup and that you're directly talking to your physician about anything that's a little out of the ordinary for you. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a fantastic take-home point. Peter, any saved rounds? Uh, we haven't discussed clinical research, but a lot of the progress that's going on between chemotherapy and, and better tolerance, better activity, the immune therapy, basically using the immune therapy is all built on research that's 10, 15 years old. Uh, but we're still proceeding forward because the majority of people with advanced lung cancer, unfortunately, will succumb to their disease. So we need more effective treatments. We need to organize them in a better way. We have to make them better tolerated for the patients. So a big plug for any kind of research or clinical trials for people with lung cancer is encouraged. Well, outstanding. Gentlemen, thank you all very much for being uh, on the show. And listeners, we really are delighted that you've dialed in. And, and please feel free to write us with any questions. That would be at letters at paulbryanroach.com. And, uh, and if you have any topic you would like to have us discuss or comments or feedback, uh, you can log on to uh, com and click the about and contact page or just send them to that email letters at yeah my mom had to be different she had to be different and we'd like to have a, a different email for you guys to use something simpler but i haven't figured that out yet all right thanks everybody thank you very much talk to you it's been a pleasure 